Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another podcast. Um, I guess it's the sample hour. Welcome back to another episode of the sample hour. It's not like the sample hour, though. Still waiting on Wes to come back for those. Um, but today we got a very special guest. I was able to get Mr. Davi Barker on the podcast. Very intelligent guy. I had fun talking to him about zombies after the podcast was over. We talked about a lot of zombie stuff. Super cool guy, super intelligent guy. Um, but what you need to do to support Davi is you need to go to Amazon.com and look for his books. And you can look for his books just by putting in his name, Davi Barker. So D-A-V-I-B-A-R-K-E-R. Um, he has some other websites too. He has uh, SurvivorMax.com. That's his, that's his, uh, his zombie novel. Uh, BitcoinNotBombs.com. That's his Bitcoin merchandise. ShinyBadges.com is his other merchandise. And then also MuslimAgress.com is another website of his. Um, also, um, if you guys would not mind going to GoFundMe.com and looking for San Drew Sample to the, to the uh, Jackalope Freedom Festival and donating a dollar. That's all I'm asking, just one dollar. You don't even have to do that, though, if you don't feel like it. Just continue to download this podcast. But it is nice to get support. I hope you guys like this show. Um, and also, if you wouldn't mind going to Izzy Rocks, uh, GoFundMe as well, and donating some money to Izzy Rock. Izzy Rock's the reason why I have a podcast. So if it wasn't for Izzy, there'd be no podcast by Drew Sample. Um, also... Um, yeah, that, that was good. Good transition there. Um, also, so the music on today's podcast is by Tobacco. I don't know if you guys have heard of Tobacco. He's in Black Moth Super Rainbow. Um, it's, he has a new album. None of this music's from his new album. The first song is called Street Trash. I like it. You don't, if you don't like it, oh well. Second song is called Harry Candy. I really like that song. That's the song that we close it out with today. Um, so yeah, so go to muslimagris.com, shinybadges.com, bitcoin.bombs.com, survivormax.com. I did buy uh, Davi's books. I got, uh, I got them in. I'm going to start reading them soon. Um, also we're going to be having Josie the outlaw on the podcast soon to kind of promote for the Jack Club Freedom Festival and also just to promote for the stuff that Josie has going on. Um, she's having some computer issues right now. So we have not been able to, I, I have not been able to get her scheduled. Um, and I think that's pretty much it, guys. Um, things are good. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for downloading. But uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this podcast with Davi. Um, Davi, uh, man, it's, it was really fun to pick his brain and, 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 you know, just have a nice conversation with him. The guy's super intelligent. Um, so, Davi, thanks again for coming on. Um, hope to have you on again soon. But anyways, guys, enjoy the show.
Uh, welcome to another episode of The Sample Hour. Your host, at your Sample. I've finally been able to uh, get this guest on today. Um, I've talked about him on other podcasts, uh, mainly because of this, his airport incident. But uh, Mr. Davi Barker, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. I'm glad I could uh, I could finally get a hold of you. It's glad Facebook. Thank you, Facebook. Even though you know the the evils of Facebook, but there's also some great networking tools that you can have. So, uh, but um, but yeah. So we were just talking about some stuff. Uh, um, uh, Davi, if you guys don't know, if you guys don't remember, on a terrible cast, we were talking about an incident. So. Where Davi and another gentleman were at an airport, and because Davi, well, do you want to tell the story, Davi? Um, yeah, sure. So I was traveling with Bill Bupert, and we were at the. Um, he's from zerogov.com, and we were on our way home from the Liberty Forum in New Hampshire, traveling out of the Manchester airport. And by kind of coincidence, we were on the same plane. We didn't sort of plan this. We ran into each other in the TSA line, and we're like, "Hey, I know you." <laughs> um, and uh, both of us, as a policy, opt out. So we're both sort of, you know, forming a line, waiting for the, the agents to come over and pat us down. And uh, Bill goes before me, and his sort of tactic, I guess, is he, he complies right up to the point that the guy's going to touch him. And then he says, um, yeah, do whatever you want, but just don't touch my dick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this obviously makes the guy upset or nervous because he knows that he has to. <laughs> And uh, so uh, I come in behind Bill, and what I generally try to do is I just want something. I want to say something to the uh, agent that's going to make him think or whatever, or I try to get out a human being in there somewhere behind the badge. Yeah. And uh, so he said, uh, he said, like somewhere during a pat down, they said, I'm going to move up your leg until I meet resistance. <clears throat> and so I said, uh, if that's all it takes, I'm ready to resist now. And so he like he paused, he thought about it, and then he's like he tried to ignore it, but you could tell like I hit a funny bone, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh as he's patting me down, he says, you know, not all of us not all of us wanna wanna do this, you know, like I really wanted to be a pilot. And uh you his shattered dreams. Yeah, no, really. And so he starts telling me that um, there are some people there who are just sort of like waiting for openings in the airline industry. And there are some people there who are on the security track and he calls them the security track. And um, uh, so he was uh, he he was just waiting for an opening somewhere to be a pilot and he's getting some sort of credential or something. And so he's biding his time, you know, touching people's junk. And uh, so that was that's sort of uneventful. I do this whenever I fly. And uh, it's always sort of different and you have sort of interesting conversations. But like after the screening, like I'm already out um, and I get through the screening and like I'm looking for my luggage. And then as I'm picking up my luggage, another woman comes to me and she says, is this your stuff? And I'm like, yes. And I'm like, well, this needs to go through the screening again. There's some unusual metal in here. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I travel with a lot of merchandise. So sometimes the merchandise looks weird. It doesn't look like toiletries right it looks like a box full of metal pins or something yeah so she she passes it through again and she says no problem now what's interesting is she unpacks my luggage and runs it through and i keep all my merchandise in transparent plastic containers so she could immediately see everything that was in my bag as soon as it was opened but she felt the need to x-ray it anyway (laughs) um so then she clears me so like i've had like the double secret screening for both my body and my luggage and i start to leave the terminal and as i'm leaving the terminal i'm confronted by two more agents who are in suits and they start asking me questions now at first i don't know who these men are they didn't identify themselves i've been cleared by security um and the first thing they say is uh so where are you going today and uh i didn't even think they were agents i thought maybe they were other people that bill knew and so I said, Earth. <laughs> and they said, well, can you be more specific? I said, the northern part. <laughs> so uh, then the guy says, uh, just answer the question. And so now I know he's an agent, you know, like that's something only a statist would say. Yeah. And uh, so I, uh, my policy is I don't answer questions. If I, if I, unless I'm obligated to, I don't, I don't cooperate. And so I ask him, am I obligated to answer these questions? And he says, well, you are if you're traveling internationally. 
which I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and I said, do you have any evidence that I'm traveling internationally? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, uh, I just need to search your bag for your boarding pass. Now, what's weird about that is, technically speaking, they are allowed to ask to see your boarding pass at any time. But he didn't say, let me see your boarding pass. He said, I need to search your bag for your boarding pass, even though it's in my pocket. <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, I said, I don't believe I have to consent to a search. I've been screened by the TSA, and they've given me a clean bill of health. So uh, I don't believe that I have any obligation to let you search my bag again. And then the second guy says, uh, we just need to know about the Bitcoin. What? And at this point, I'm sort of flabbergasted. I'm like, the TSA has never asked me about Bitcoin before. Like, what, who, what, like, is there a hidden camera? Like, I feel like I'm, like, out of time or something. You know what I mean? It's disorienting. Yeah. And so, um, and I also thought it might be disappearing. Like, I thought, oh, the TSA is looking for Bitcoin. Maybe I'm in trouble because I'm a pretty big Bitcoiner. Yeah. Um. And so I sort of – I'm like, wait, what? Like, what are you talking about? And he says, we think we saw Bitcoin in your luggage and we just need to – we just need to check. Like, they like – <laughs> so, like, that's the thing that, like, I don't – like, like that's so, like, scary that these are the people that are supposed to be keeping our airports safe. <laughs> yeah. Because they think that you can actually see Bitcoin in a bag. <laughs> yeah, so uh exactly. And so now I know I'm not only dealing with I'm not only dealing with a new security apparatus, I'm also dealing with an idiot because he's 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 lying to me first off. He did not see Bitcoin in my bag. Yeah. Like he may as well have said I saw a unicorn in your bag. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's absurd, right? And so um so I said, What do you think Bitcoin looks like? Like what did you see exactly? <laughs> And he says, um, well, it's like a brass token. And uh, uh, that's not true. <laughs> but, um, you know, what I think probably happened is that he had some sort of a briefing. And in that briefing, there was a PowerPoint presentation. And in that PowerPoint presentation, there was whatever image came up with a Google image search. And that image was a pile of brass coins with bees on them. And that's probably all he took out of the entire presentation. And so he thinks he's supposed to be looking for brass tokens with bees on them. And um, so at, at this point, Bill, who's listening to this whole thing, tells the man, uh, well, that's impossible. Bitcoin is a digital currency that doesn't have any physical manifestation. And so now that he's entered the scene, he's become another person of interest. And the second officer begins talking to Bill and the first officer begins talking to me. And I'm sort of evading. I'm refusing to answer any questions. But Bill finally tells the man that I'm on a domestic flight, which means that I'm, it's, it's not what they're looking for. And so as soon as Bill tells them that we're on a domestic flight, they both sort of are like, oh, not our jurisdiction. And they leave like very abruptly. That's true. Uh, but they keep hovering around me. So we go to the terminal and these agents are still sort of walking by and they station somebody at our terminal to sort of like point and watch me. And um, also there were two, like, armed officers, like, flak jackets and, and, like, sidearms that were sort of hovering around our terminal, which I've never seen before. I've never seen a bulletproof vest in an airport terminal before. No. Um, you know, because it's supposed to be a gun-free zone. I don't know what they're protecting themselves from. Yeah. But – but uh, so that, uh, that – to me, that's just intimidation tactics. Uh, but so what it turns out they were doing is they're enforcing this law that says that you have to declare anything worth more than $10,000 – when you travel internationally, if you're if you're carrying more than ten thousand dollars in cash, you have to declare it when you travel internationally. So essentially, the TSA has decided that Bitcoin is cash, but hasn't told anyone. They're just sort of using it to sort of selectively enforce things. Now, the thing is, there was nothing Bitcoin related in my bag. I had actually sold out of Bitcoin merchandise at Liberty Forum. The only thing Bitcoin related on my person was my T-shirt. So. It must just be that he recognized the symbol, he saw all the strange metal through the x-ray, and he said, oh, this must be a huge cache of these incredibly valuable digital, you know, online drug money things that I've read so much about. That's and, That's so interesting. <laughs> and so I like to say, you know, I know that I am a troublemaker, right? I know that when I go through TSA, I say things that they don't like to hear, and I know that I don't cooperate if I don't have – I exercise my rights, and that makes me an unusual individual, and being unusual makes you a target. 
but the point is, if I had cooperated, if I had answered their questions from the get-go, I never would have found out that this was about Bitcoin. I would have said, oh, I'm traveling to San Francisco, and then he would have said, oh, no problem, carry on, and never would have found out that this was about the TSA looking for Bitcoin. So I think of myself as the canary in the mine. I'm the first case of this where the TSA has been screening for Bitcoin, and that's probably because other people didn't know that that's why they were being asked that. That's really fascinating, man. I uh, When I first read that article, I thought it was because they found your Bombs Not Bitcoin hoodie. And no, because it doesn't say that. A lot of people thought that. There's a lot of misconceptions about this story yeah. uh, because it was misreported. Forbes got it wrong. Business Insider got it wrong. Everybody sort of twisted the story a little bit based on not reading the details very carefully. So <clears throat> I was wearing a Bitcoin Not Bombs hoodie. I think I was wearing the T-shirt. I'm, I don't remember now. But it has a picture of a B-17 bomber with uh, with Bitcoin sort of tumbling out of the the, the bay sort of like a food drop or a bomb drop, right? And But the thing is, the shirt doesn't say Bitcoin, not bombs on it. <clears throat> like, I could understand um, giving extra scrutiny to a person with a shirt that said bombs on it, even if it said not bombs. Like, that's the kind of idiocy we expect from the TSA. But this didn't. It's just a picture of a plane. There's no text on it. Yeah. So do you think they just screened your name and they just were like, this guy's actively, actively, he actively has Bitcoin uses bitcoin so he must be flying internet we want to see if he's flying international or i don't think it was my name that's a possibility i think it was that i think it was that they saw the bitcoin b logo on the shirt and they've been trained to look for that that's so weird man that's like uh the other thing is the woman who unpacked my luggage to be screened again she asked me if i had any coins in here and I think that was kind of a gotcha question because I've gotten that question twice more now where the question is, do you have any coins in here? Now, the thing is, when they're x-raying your luggage, they're not looking for pocket change, right? <laughs> like they're looking for guns, knives, and baby needs. Yeah. So the time you look for coins is when you're walking through an x-ray machine when you empty your pockets. So that's a really weird question. Do you have any coins in here? And so I think that that might have been like um, – they're go- like they could have construed if I had said no and then they had found Bitcoin, they could have construed that as a kind of lie. Like these sorts of investigations love to find fake lies so that they can threaten you with sort of hindering an investigation and use that to coerce you into doing something else. Yeah. So I and, and this is the third that that was the first time, but since then it's happened two more times that they've asked that question, do you have coins in here? Which is just bizarre. Well, it's so bizarre because they don't realize that Bitcoin's not really coins. <laughs> yeah. That's like the funniest fucking thing about it. We're trying to, we're going to get Bitcoin. There's this huge, there's this huge memo in the TSA and they're looking for all the Bitcoin and they're looking for the physical Bitcoins instead of. I don't know, man. <laughs> and the other funny thing, and this wasn't reported anywhere, but I'll just go ahead and tell you, is I was carrying a knife the whole time. <laughs> no fucking way. And they had no – and nobody even looked at the knife. Nobody looked at the knife. The knife went right through the x-ray machine. As I was packing up, I pat it in my pocket. I was talking to the second round of screening with the knife in my pocket. Like <laughs> – <laughs> So and I just – I, I do this um, because, uh, you know, I, I don't want to advocate anybody get in trouble, but I've never gotten in trouble doing this. Um, you know, the statistics say that the CSA misses 75 percent of the things when – of, of like guns, knives, and bombs when they screen themselves, um, yeah. when they test themselves. And so I just figure, well, I'm just going to ignore them. I'm just going to live my life like I live my life. And I, I like to carry a knife. It makes me feel safe and secure. And if I'm ever on a plane that crashes on a desert island somewhere, I want to be the guy that had the knife in his pocket. Yeah. Right? And, like, true. to me, it's a security issue. Like, even if even if it's not an airplane security issue, it's a survival issue. Right? Yeah. And so I just ignore that rule. And, like, they almost never they almost never find it. Like have they now when they do find it what do what do they do? They pull me aside and they say, "Hey, we want to talk to you about this piece of luggage right here in this pocket right here or whatever wherever it's hidden. Sometimes it's on a keychain. Sometimes I I have it. The one that I have right now actually fits in my cell phone. It, it's like a folding knife that fits in a case on my cell phone. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Um, but essentially, I just I just go. Oh, I, I totally forgot that that was in there. And then they say, oh, well, that's okay. We just can't let you through. Do you want us to mail it to you? 
And I say, no, you know, it's not very expensive. Why don't you just keep it? And uh, that's because I figure once the TSA is founded, it's tainted. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'm always looking for sort of ways like what like what is the best way? Right. And in my experience, the, the things that get cost, caught the least are um, Leatherman's because Leatherman's fold and they're so dense that in an x-ray machine, they just look like a block of metal. They don't obviously look like a knife. Yeah. And then the one that I have now is a Sinclair folding card knife. It's like a knife that's designed to be folded into a credit card. And then uh, I bought a case for my phone that's designed to hold a credit card. And so the knife just sort of fits into the case of my cell phone. And I think to some extent the technology obfuscates the x-ray. That's awesome. So, I mean, is the knife the knife's pretty it's, uh It's the size of a credit card. And then it unfolds. So the the blade part sort of pops out and the plastic part of the credit card becomes a handle. And so the finished product is about twice the length of a credit card. And uh, it's not really sturdy. Like I wouldn't use it as a weapon, but it's very sharp. So if, you know, if I'm on that desert island and I need yeah. to peel the bark off of a spear, it would definitely be good for that. Pretty awesome, man. Look it up now. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's fucking awesome, man. That's just, oh, wow. Okay. Anyways, I got distracted. <laughs> Um, by the, by the talks of your cool knife. So it's funny that like, and I also had Bitcoin on my phone. So like if they were really looking for Bitcoin, they didn't look on my laptop. They didn't look on my pen drive. They didn't look on my phone. They wanted to look through my luggage. Yeah. <laughs> so funny, man. That's, uh, that's our, that's, I mean, I guess like the infuriating, the infuriating thing about it is it's like we, we get subjugated to like all these like screenings and everything else like that and for what like they're not even smart enough to find the things that they're looking for yeah and it's right even when i got like the 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 most thorough screening that they can muster beyond a strip search i still had a knife in my pocket the whole time (laughs) funny man funny man um so so now so ever since then so like uh do you think they ask everybody if they have coins in their luggage now or do you think it's specific no i don't think so i don't know i'd like to hear from other people but i i don't think so the thing is i make it a point to travel wearing this bitcoin not bombs hoodie all the time now and so i think i think maybe i'm triggering that question search me for bitcoin I don't even have Bitcoin, man. This is so funny, man. Um, that's Well, that's the other thing I've started doing is I now, like, remember I said I keep my merchandise in these plastic tins that are clear? Yeah. So I have one of those now that I keep, um, I keep in my pocket now when I travel, and it's full of blank aluminum casatious coins. <laughs> so it's like it's like 100 brass tokens or aluminum tokens with a Bitcoin B on them in a plastic tube. Yeah. And I just I'll put it there separately from all my luggage, so it's in plain sight. <laughs> You're just trying to troll the TSA. <laughs> <laughs> what I think is funny is like now you're like you've gone out of your way to fuck with the TSA, so they think that they're gonna look. We found Bitcoin. <laughs> I just am like imagining the the story when the one day when they confiscate your aluminum coins and then they're like we found bitcoin and then they're finally like, some we're rich <laughs> yeah right well that was asked him what he thought bitcoin was worth and all he said was we understand it's very volatile <clears throat> excuse me very volatile and so how like i don't know how you enforce this rule that you can't travel with more than $10,000 if you don't know what the thing is worth in the first place I don't either. I I don't. Uh, it, when we when I when I honestly try to think about what the TSA does in the in the way to enforce their policies, it just hurts my brain. Like it's like when you try to use logic, it's like okay, so you're looking for Bitcoin. They don't know what it is. They don't know how much it's worth, but they know it's volatile. <laughs> yeah, they know it's valuable. They know it's volatile. They know. I don't know what else they know. They. they I don't know. I mean, you got to understand, these are people who are literally hired off of pizza boxes. I mean, like, <laughs> you can't really expect them to to know, I don't know. Something I want to do, and I just got to find the right event and the right activist to help me do this, is I want to send um, 
<clears throat> or maybe I'll go. I don't know. But we need essentially a cameraman on one side of a TSA checkpoint and an activist on the other side of a TSA checkpoint. And I want them to like hold up a big sign that just has a Bitcoin QR code on it so that you can actually like hold up your phone and like blip Bitcoin through the checkpoint. Yeah. Just to prove it can be done, right? Just to say like, here, screen this, you know? <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> and they're like, we're smuggling Bitcoin. It'd have to be for an international flight too. And then yeah, then you can be like, we smuggle Bitcoin. But that would yeah, that would still be pointless, right? Because if you wanted to smuggle Bitcoin to wherever, like Somalia, like it would just be a matter of like having a address to send it to. I mean, yeah, it, it, there's no real point in carrying it through an airport. Um, yeah. but I think just think it's a great photo op, right? <laughs> to say like so like it's just it's this, this it's traveling through the air now you have to screen all of the electrical signals in the airport <laughs> bitcoins in the air <laughs> that's going to be terrifying for the men in suits um that's so fucking crazy man like i i honestly thought it was the drop bitcoins not bombs but the real story is so much better than like that like that's just <laughs> It's so like it's so crazy, man. Like that's uh, that's nuts. Um, so like changing topics. Like, what do you think? Uh, like I I was reading an article the other day. Like, because everybody's saying how like Bitcoin is bubbled and uh, it's starting to. I mean, it's still worth way more than the dollar. Number one and number two. Like maybe it it, it ballooned up, but now it's like more of a steady worth, and it's still worth a lot. Like a lot of money. Um, what do you think, like, when people say, like, Litecoin's going to take off next and, and all this other stuff? Um, I think of the altcoins as kind of laboratories for good policy, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, Litecoin is an experiment. It's to say, hey, is Bitcoin better or is cryptocurrency better if the mining is designed to be distributed as opposed to sort of centralized on like an ASICs miner or something like that. Because some of the th – one of the things people are a little sort of uh, concerned about with Bitcoin is the idea of um, large processors dominating the mining pool. Yeah. And so Litecoin is designed to prevent that and we'll get to see, does that work or does that have its own pitfalls? Like it's not just theory. It's like somebody created a coin. They're running it like a beta test. I mean, keep in mind, Bitcoin is still in beta, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, pretty unreal. Like that's pretty unreal. And, and so now we get to see, like, is Bitcoin going to go inevitably towards this problem of centralized mining? And if so, Litecoin will have the solution or will Litecoin prove that this decentralized, uh, sort of complete decentralized mining pool idea has its own pitfalls, in which case we'll know never to adopt that into the Bitcoin uh, system. Or will Litecoin prove that it's fantastic and it's way better than Bitcoin is now and Bitcoin can actually incorporate those features before it has a problem? So so the way I see it is all, all every cryptocurrency is an idea for an improvement on Bitcoin that either Bitcoin can adopt or it will become the dominant currency on top of Bitcoin or whatever but it's it's just um you know it's the marketplace it's the it's yeah. the same idea as like any other competing product you know like do people want a Zoom or an iPad or an iPod. Like the market decided that the Zoom were, or is it the Zoom? I don't the remember. Zoom, yeah, the Zoom. Nobody even remembers it, right? No one remembers. <laughs> but you can you can actually download this podcast in the Zoom marketplace just for the five people that still had the Zoom. I want to make sure it was available for them. <laughs> well, good good for them. And if they're listening, we thank them for their service. Yeah. <laughs> I think what they did though with that was they. Uh, and then we'll get back. I think they just. Like anything that was failing, like to kind of compete with Apple, they're just like, all right, we'll just incorporate it into Xbox. So you can actually like the Zune market. It, I think they changed the name, and now it's like it's just what you can download from your Xbox. But I mean, this is sort of why you don't want a universal currency because yeah. when you when you have a universal currency, it's like having any other monopoly, and it's like any time that you need to reform or change the system in any way, you have to risk the whole system to test out your idea. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Whereas like in a marketplace or in sort of a competing ecosystem of cryptocurrencies, like if you have some crazy idea for a way that you can use Bitcoin, you could test it out in a low risk market, you know? Yeah, um, that's very true. I, you know, I like I kick <laughs> myself a lot because uh, when Bitcoin first came out, I was using uh, Usenet to get like movies and books and stuff like that. 
and uh, the I don't know if you've ever used Usenet, but like you you'd have mm-hmm. to find. So basically, it's it's part of the deep web, and you can uh, it, it a lot of things originated from it. But like you, it works different than like a torrent. But it's like if you you everything you get is encrypted data, so you have to have like a basically you have a service that allows you to connect to Usenet, and then you get then then there's like the different bulletin boards where you get the basically the files from. And so the one the one bulletin board that I wanted to join because the other one I was using like they're like we're getting too much heat from the government we're shutting down it was like it only cost like a, a bitcoin at the time to get it and or they wanted to get payments in bitcoin and the only way I could find at the time to get bitcoin was like you'd call this number and you'd be on the phone for 20 minutes and from that 20 minutes you'd get a bitcoin and weird yeah it was and it really freaked me out and then like like a couple years later, Bitcoin's coming about, and I'm like, man, I'm kind of sketched out about Bitcoin because I just wasn't paying attention to it. And I'm like, man, for 20 minutes on the phone, I could have Bitcoin, and it'd be worth $600. $600 an hour. That's not bad. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's six hundred twelve twenty four hundred dollars an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just like, uh, it's, it's like I always like stumbled on things. I've stumbled on so many things, man, and I like turned my head to it and like, I don't know what that is. And instead of like just kind of doing research or trying to understand it. And uh, so I don't, I don't make those mistakes anymore, but it's like, it's, it's just, it's just interesting, man. Like I had a, I don't oh, know. Oh, I do. <laughs> I, I mean, I got into Bitcoin fairly early. The, I first started accepting Bitcoin when Bitcoin was $3. And uh, I promptly spent all my Bitcoin buying gold as soon as I found a way to do that. Really? And so like I bought an ounce of gold for like 50 Bitcoin. <laughs> and it's crazy. like I still have the ounce of gold. That's a nice thing to have, yeah. but uh, you know, fifty Bitcoin today <laughs> is worth quite a bit more than that. Yeah, it's no, like thirty grand. <laughs> yeah, that's so much. That's so crazy, man. But I mean, it's okay with me, like because none of these things are certain. You sort of you adopt the risk, and so I was I was hedging the volatility of. Bitcoin by purchasing the security of gold and I got security in spades, you know, <laughs> so that's okay with me. It's just, uh, I, that was the risk assessment I made. That was the purchase I made. I take responsibility for that. Well, too, at the time too, everybody was like, I mean, it was really, Hey, buy gold and silver. Like gold was like, gold was still going up in value and Bitcoin was so new. I mean, it yeah. was just, it was a logical, it was the logical thing to do back then. So I don't, it's uh, I don't know. That's interesting, man. So you got in Bitcoin early. So how? Who first approached you to buy something from you in Bitcoin? Do you remember, or was it anonymous? It was. Um, I remember his name. I remember who he was. I can see that his Facebook avatar in my mind, but I can't remember his name for some reason. Yeah. So um, I first started accepting Bitcoin because I was a writer and editor, and I still am of Daily Anarchist. And Seth decided to take the site all Bitcoin after he found hosting and advertisers that would pay in Bitcoin and accept Bitcoin. And so he said, hey, if you want to continue writing for the site, you take Bitcoin or, you know, GTFO because this is an all Bitcoin site now. And so I'm like, okay, I'll take your funny digital video game money. That's all right (laughs) with me. And so I just started collecting it um, as payment for blogging and editing this website. And at the time, uh, shiny badges was fairly new, and I only had two pins. I don't know if you have you come across shinybadges.com. That's like my merchandise site. I haven't really checked it out. Is that where you had all the cool zombie stuff and the <clears throat> penguin with the hat or the? With the um, or? Well, those are those. Are, that's a whole different project. That's okay. the those are the pork scouts buttons, and pork scouts are. Um, a sort of uh, alternative to Boy Scouts in my novel Survivor Max, so that's SurvivorMax.com, which is about a young sort of pork scout kid surviving alone in the zombie apocalypse. Uh, shi- shiny, they'll probably be on Shiny Badges once I get them manufactured. But uh, Shiny Badges is a place where I sell mostly lapel pins, but also patches and T-shirts and other kind of liberty-themed stuff. But at the time, Shiny Badges was brand new. And I had two buttons. I just had the black and gold flag pin and I and the voluntarist V pin. And I was looking for designs to add a new design. And so I added the Bitcoin free the market, free the world pin. And I posted on Facebook, I'm like, what do you guys think? I'm thinking about having these pins manufactured. And this guy's like, I will only buy this with Bitcoin. And I'm like, well, how do I do that? 
And he's like, and it turned out that he was, um, he was uh, an employee of BitPay or, or uh, tech support for BitPay or something like that. So he got me set up with BitPay, and so now I have all these like Bitcoin. I accept Bitcoin here buttons from my website, and so um, yeah, so shiny badges. I started accepting Bitcoin on the site, and you know it's like thirty percent of my income on that website is in Bitcoin now. So that's awesome, man. Um, I, I have never really purchased Bitcoin. I've only ever really accepted it as payment for things. That's, that's interesting. That's like a good way to do it though. I mean, in reality, if you're going to get Bitcoin, you'd want somebody to buy something like your goods and services or your talents. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, writing, editing, I do graphic design, um, these, the, the merchandising, merchandising, stuff like that. Yeah. So when is, is, so is your novel finished then, or are you still working on it? No, Survivor Max is out. Um, the first book is out, and the first book is about the main character, Max, is sort of trapped inside a gated community. And it's about him both figuring out how to survive inside the compound and then figuring out how to escape the compound. Uh, but I have a book deal for three books, so it's going to be a trilogy. The second book is about half written, and it's called School Sucks or School Bites. And uh, – it's about uh, Max is sort of taken into custody by these people who've converted his school into a refugee center and they won't let him leave for his own safety. And then uh, the third book is going to be called Psycho Class A, which is a sort of running theme throughout the book is that his mother was a child psychologist and she has this concept of a Psycho Class A, which is like an intact human brain, which is very rare. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> That sounds awesome, man. So – so I didn't realize that you wrote a zombie book, man. Like, I'm still – I feel like uh, it's all good, man. You said before, man, I feel like I should have listened. It's like, well, Davi, I, I don't know that much about you, so I feel like I should know more, more about you. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just know that you were cool and and you got – and you fucked with the TSA. And I'm like, I want to get this guy in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's pretty awesome. So what, like, kind of inspired you to write the zombie novel? Like, was it uh, – were you always just a fan of zombies? I've always been a fan of zombies. So I'll tell you kind of the story of this this uh, this book. So I started out writing an alien story, and you can still find it. It's called I think on I think there's versions of it online called Somalia 2030, uh, and there's other versions of it called The Pirate Bay, but it's B E I G H, like the Turkish name. Um, and so Bay is uh, he's an alien, and he's from this sort of intergalactic uh, anarcho-capitalist trading consortium that classifies planets based on their psycho class, right? And so if if a planet is of a peaceful and voluntary psycho class, then that planet is cleared for trading by the Trade Federation. But if the planet is sort of aggressive and bigoted and, you know, like Earth, yeah. that they're sort of just they're just sort of like red flagged and said, you know, travel here at your own risk. And what makes Bay a pirate is that he ignores the guidance of the trade consortium and travels to these sort of fringe planets that are on the cusp of the aggressive psychoclass and the peaceful psychoclass because he wants to be the first to market. So he's in the business of proving that this planet is ready for Psycho Class A and ready to open up for markets. And he looks – he searches the planet for people who fit this sort of healthy brain category. And he finds this boy named Hakim in Somalia, right? <laughs> so I started writing this alien story and I had this idea that they were going to like travel the world and find all of these sort of like new wave kids who are going to save the planet from itself and – and stuff like that. But I was doing so much research because every new character was from a different part of the planet. And so I was doing all of this research, figuring out, like, what is a teenager's life like in China? What is a teenager's life like in Sweden? You know? And so I was doing so much research for so little writing that it just got very difficult. So I, I went to my friend, Taryn Lupo, who's the author of The Pirates of Savannah. And I said, how do you do this? Like, I'm having this writer's block problem. And he says, uh, he said, you shouldn't try to write an epic novel on your first try. Like it's sort of like weightlifting. You have to get used to the you have to get used to the lifting and then you have to add a little more weight on the bar. So get used to finishing a novel before you try and write an epic. And to do that, you have to find something that's fun to write that you already know about and um that you know you'll keep working on. And so I was like, Well, what's my favorite thing? My favorite thing is zombies. Yeah. Right. So I started writing this book and my idea was just that it's one character, it's Max. And Max is, uh, even though this isn't the alien story, Max is one of these sort of psycho class A exceptional children. 
and uh, he's surviving in this zombie apocalypse. And so I'm flying home from Liberty Forum. This is the year before. And I'm just on the plane, chapter one, you know, Max is in school, zombie outbreak. And by coincidence, the woman sitting next to me is a middle school teacher grading zombie stories written by middle school kids. (laughs) (laughs) And so she gives me all of these kids' assignments. She had used zombies to teach the kids about viruses in a science class. Oh, that's such a creative way to do it. And so, yeah, so all a lot of the the um ideas that her class had for coming up with ways of dealing with zombies are ideas that I gave to Max and Max has a lot of their so like for example he like uses ketchup to slip them up right so if he runs away he drops a bunch of ketchup on the ground so that anything that chases him is going to slip and fall right That's stuff like awesome. that that comes from these middle school kids so I dedicated the book to them and um I wrote the first book and uh, I have a three-book deal now. It's coming from a, a outfit called Prepper Press that deals in survival manuals and kind of collapse and prepper scenario stuff. That's and awesome. uh, so it's sort of designed to teach kids in a sort of passive way about survival training too. Yeah. Um, like Max's dad was a prepper before he died, and he left him this like survivor gear bag, which is identical to – the survivor gear bag at survivorgearbags.com. So like all the tools that are in that bag Max has and learns to use in the book. Yeah. That's awesome. That's super creative. That's uh that's very cool. That's something I need to get more into. Like all my friends are big into survival, but I'm the uh, like it's uh I've always just been kind of lazy about it cuz all my friends really knew how to do shit, so I just was like, "All right, what do you need me to do?" Okay, I'll do this. And that was always like whenever I go camping or anything, so yeah. Uh, how did you get into survival originally? Was it just, did you grow up that way? Or is that like something you... Uh, no, it's new for me. This is sort of, it's sort of been about me learning about it too. Oh, that's um, cool. So yeah, I met some survival types. Like I met Kelly, uh, Kelly John Doe from Survivor Gearbags. I met him at Liberty Forum that year too. He's the one who turned me on to the Sinclair card knife. Okay. And so just sort of getting to know him and sort of uh, writing this book and sort of bouncing ideas off of the people in the community who are preppers, they've sort of helped me consult and make sure that, like, you know, the tactical med kit is accurate and the way that he applies his bandaging is accurate, right? Like, so there's been consulting with prepper guys. And I guess I do a little, like, I do uh, stockpile some food and stuff. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's a new field for me. So part of the book has been about learning it myself. Yeah, do you think that's like it's it's part of like you know, I think like just saying you're you're an anarchist, you should be prepared for. I, I feel like it's like uh, the more I decide I want to be an anarchist, like the more like I not I decide I want to be, the more I kind of embrace it. The more I kind of want to get out of society, anyways. It's like yeah. I kind of want to just distance myself and like and kind of try to learn to live off the land and not be so dependent on things. So I think that's. That's awesome, man. So is it so the the book's really kind of more designed it's it's geared for adults, but it's also can be geared for kids to read as well. Well, I'm sort of aiming for that Harry Potter middle ground, right? So the the characters and the story and the sort of like the level of violence in the story is appropriate for uh a young adult book. But I'm trying to also include sort of Easter eggs and inside jokes and and things that um, will sort of keep an adult reader interested. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And you can get it um, – you, so you have it on your website and it's also on their website? Yeah, so SurvivorMax.com will direct you to the publisher. And then also if you go to, to my website, which is uh, I guess DaviBarker.com, there's a writing tab and you can see it there too. That's cool. How much, and, uh, how much is the book? I think – I think the cover price was like $10, but I know if you find it on Amazon, it's less because Amazon puts everything on sale whether you ask them to or not. And then they take uh, 20%. I, I don't know the amount, but, yeah, they take their cut. They take their – yeah, my friend – I just had this guy, uh, my friend uh, Conrad Yeager on. He wrote this book about the deep web, and he said, yeah, Amazon, I think he said they take like 20%. Like they'll sell it for the same price as you, but they'll take – I don't know. They got to have their cut, but, yeah. So go to DaviBarker.com to buy it. it was, that's what I'm trying to say. Don't go through Amazon. <laughs> well, actually, um, going through Amazon is actually good for me in other ways. Okay. Like, because the more people buy it from Amazon, the higher up it is in the rating, the more likely it is to reach a general audience. Okay. Um, if, uh, if you leave a review, especially, like, that's really sort of good for the analytics. Um, 
on Amazon. So it's sort of like if you want to if you want to buy it for Bitcoin, the only place to do it is my website. Uh, if you want to help me sort of game the analytics at Amazon and reach a general audience, then it's actually better for me if you buy it from them. Okay, cool. That's what I'll do then. Um, I'm trying to think what else I wanted to ask you. Um, uh, so pork fest is so pork fest is coming up. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. So pork scouts. So yeah. I sort of just invented this concept, right? Because I didn't want to use the Boy Scouts in the book, and I'm like the kids being raised by anarchists. And so throughout the book, there's these references to uh, to pork fest, and one of them is that the survivor troop he's a part of is called the Porcupine Freedom Scouts. And, like, people really touched on this idea. They really liked it. There's parents in the community now that are like, we need something like this. And so uh, someone created a Facebook group called Porcupine Freedom Scouts, and there's parents there who are sort of brainstorming, like, how do we get into some sort of, you know, scout training or liberty training for young kids and stuff. Yeah. And uh, so this year at Porkfest, which is the uh, Free State Project sort of premier summer event, um, I'm going to have the first set of merit badges made and there's, there's 10 of them so far. And, um, it's sort of the same idea as boy scout badges. Only these are just buttons. I'll probably make actual patches eventually, but I'm going to sort of game test which ones are popular. So, um, there are things like, uh, the penguin one, for example, is a picture of a emperor penguin and it says the emperor wears no clothes. Yeah. And, uh, it's a, it's given for speaking truth to power. Right? Because there's that story, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, is about the child who's the only one who tells the emperor the truth. Yeah. Um, others are zombie preparedness, which is probably for learning to stockpile food or maybe weapons training. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's the honey badger, uh, don't give a bit badge, which is, I think, going to be for um, the kid's first Bitcoin wallet or possibly his first uh, gray market tax free transaction. Uh, what are the others? There's 10 of them. There's uh, on the job on the record is for recording bureaucrats. Uh, Robin hood, leave no meter on, uh, leave no meter expired is for helping people avoid parking tickets by filling their parking meters. They'll, uh, you can, they'll like try to come after you for doing that too. That's the funniest thing. Yeah. This has been going on in Keene for a couple of years at least where the, the, they call it Robin hood of Keene and he goes around and, and there's a whole group of them now but they go around and they fill expired parking meters and then they leave a note on the dashboard that says uh robin hood has saved you from the king's tariff if you'd like to donate to our efforts here's where you can donate to our efforts and they got sued by the city for doing this crazy, <laughs> dude. fucking government such they're such assholes man like it's not a. they don't want you to i don't know the funniest thing about it is the city tries desperately to say that it's not about revenue generation, but there's really no other explanation for why this would upset them. Well, there's none. And then you look at why the why the fuck are police being like uh, being dictated by uh, stats, especially in like fucking New York City. Like they have the most evil police. Well, any big city has evil police, but like New York with their stop and frisk and like it's all stat driven. There was this really good uh, This American Life where this cop. Adrian Schoolcraft, he was like, "Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just give people tickets for stats." And then, like, uh, he started recording every conversation he was having with people because they were all coming after him. And they have like all these recordings to the point where he knew, like, he was trying to get internal affairs involved, and then he knew that they were coming after him. So he just went home and he like, like, was just kind of going to bed because he was like getting really freaked out. And then like. They had, like, a police raid on his house, and he had it recording. He had one – he was, like, so prepared for it. He had one recorder hidden. And he had another one out in the open, and you hear – you can hear this conversation with uh, with them trying to say that he's unhealthy. And then they locked him in a mental institution, and his dad had to fight to get him out of the mental institution. Like, it was super fucked up, all because he didn't want to, like, just do stop and frisk and, and – uh, Follow along with the stat game and just try to get you know what I'm saying like it's yeah it's so fucked up like I mean like the the idea of police I think is like it's like communism like it's it's a good idea but on paper it doesn't work out that way because motherfuckers are just gonna try to um I mean they're just gonna try to uh, use them as thugs and they're or goons and or just revenue collectors. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it turns out that when you put humans in these roles, they continue to act like humans, and they don't yeah. act like the perfect documents that you write for them. 
I mean, that's a better way to say it, man. Unfortunately, I mean, do you think it's like, uh, like, uh, like the the whole healthy brain thing is funny because it's I totally get what you're saying, and like, like, what do you like? What do you think it's going to take for people to be to get to the point where they're not just where humans just aren't trying to destroy each other all the time? Like, what do you think that's going to take? Like, so I um I think part of like so. The educational stuff, the philosophy, the economics, the libertarian, you know, the canon, right, all the books by Rothbard and stuff, I feel like that is um, uh, that is attempting to cure a disease, right? Like we come up as adults, we realize our brains are full of all this bad information, and we're like, oh, we have to relearn the world, yeah. right? So um, I do think of us sort of like medics in time of plague, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. which is sort of the metaphor I'm working with with the zombies, yeah. um, which is why, like in in the book, the most aggressive humans become the most aggressive zombies, and so the vil- the villain zombies in the book are your bureaucrats. Like the main villain in the first book is the postman. <laughs> um, but I take um, I I really like Stefan Molyneux's take on the sort of preventative end of the medicine, and he sort of argues. That And there's some, some really good sort of statistics and neurobiology to back this up, that it is about the way that you raise children. And it is about uh, if you essentially if you if you raise children in a libertarian home, like complete down to the idea of respecting their autonomy and, and granting them property and whatever, that the brain learns those neuropathways and grows into an adult where that was the original operating system, not the damaged one that had to be repaired. And um, in that sense, you sort of end up with um, a sustainable sort of multi-generational culture that, that, it, that internalizes these ideas as opposed to having to learn them over and over, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. I, I agree. Yeah, I think, um, I, think, I think that's like the biggest thing. Like you, you go away and you're pretty much – I don't – I mean I just remember in school like the teacher – the teachers were usually the worst, especially the kids that were getting picked on. The teachers were usually the ones that started picking on the kid first, and then the rest of the class does. And yeah, that was my experience. I definitely remember. I was bad at spelling, and, and I, I'm still bad at spelling to this day, and I think this might be part of it. Um, I remember being called up to the front of the class and being asked how to spell words. The teacher knew that I didn't know how to spell because I had just taken the spelling test, and she did it explicitly just to humiliate me in front of the class. And it was probably because if she said bullshit to you, you would call her out on bullshit. Yeah. Okay. I, same thing for me, man. I was uh, <laughs> I was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. Um, I remember being in Catholic school and like for real, like they actually diagnosed that. I didn't know they yeah. still did that. Oh yeah. Well, I mean. I don't know, man. I was kind of little shit. Like, if I didn't get my way, like, I would get really pissed off. Like, I was definitely flagged as a troublemaker early on. Yeah. Like, uh, like I was, um, I was a middle schooler the first time I didn't want to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, and part of it was that I went to a British school for the first couple of years, so I, it was a new concept to me. And uh, I did. It wasn't like I was like, no, I hate this. No, I'll never do this. Like, I wasn't like the kid like crossing my arms and refusing to participate. It was like I just want to know what these words mean. Can you tell me what these words mean before I say them? Yeah. And that was that was enough. That made me a troublemaker. <laughs> like, <laughs> I had I had some uh, I actually had some substitute come after me because my buddy was a Jehovah's Witness and uh, he didn't. I forget like uh, he had done something and I and I knew there were some kids in the class that were Muslim and uh, and Jewish and he said uh, something about he said Jesus. And to me, if you say Jesus in vain in a public school, that's not really a cuss word because it's it's a religious figure. And she said, you're not allowed to say cuss words. I'm like, how is that a cuss word? It's 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 a religious figure. Like it's a name. Yeah, there may even goes, be people in the class named that. <laughs> I got her to say everybody should believe in Jesus. And uh, wow. And, yeah. And then she came after me the next time she was a sub and a teacher pulled me aside. And, and I said, this is what's going on. And then luckily my mom actually was like really about religious freedom and like mm-hmm. educating me and like telling me that like people have the right to believe what they want to believe. And so I'd always stand up for people like that. And uh, I think I got that lady fired, so I was pretty happy about that. But 
Like, I, I mean, I just remember, like, always, like, I, I like that was something that, like, uh, in schools, like, I was, I was 11 years old, and this lady was probably in her 40s or 50s, and she was, like, just, like, trying to intimidate me. And I'm like, you know, who the fuck are you, lady? Like, that's not cool. So, uh, I don't know, man. So, I, so, you originally went to a British school? Well, it was a Brit. I, I lived in Saudi Arabia for a couple of years, and so... Um, the sort of Western school that was there was a British run school. And so I went there for, I think first and second grade. And then I came back to the States and did the second grade again. Um, but yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty interesting, man. I didn't know. I didn't know you grew up in uh, Saudi Arabia. I knew that you were, I knew that you were Muslim, but I did not know that. Uh, well, I wasn't Muslim at the time. Uh, my dad was doing software. He was essentially doing personnel software for the military. And so he was over there updating all their computer systems. And um, so, yeah, spent a couple of years there. Uh, but we traveled to other places, too. Like, we lived in India for a while. We lived in China for a while. Um, so, yeah, I came to the United States, and it's like I, I am an American. I was born here. And like the the non memorable years of my life were here, but like my earliest memories are in foreign countries. And so like in second grade, I arrive back in the United States, and I don't have the sort of like cultural inculcation for what is normal in the United States. And so like a lot of things came to me as a child, the way that they come to an immigrant. Like the idea of uh, my like my first year in school, everybody was concerned about what shoes you're wearing and what hat you're wearing. Like Nike. Air Jordans were really important and it was very important to wear a pro hat or a starter hat. And like these things were like totally foreign concepts to me because I, well, I didn't, I didn't grow up here. That's interesting, man. That's, that's cool to hear. But, uh, well, anyways, brother, um, I tell you what, I think we can wrap things up. Uh, we sh- oh, well, pork fest is coming up. Um, here, let's promote some stuff. It's the, it's the promotion portion of this podcast. Try to do okay. the whole thing, but, uh, so coming up, you're going to be, if people want to contact you. Uh, uh, you can reach me at Davi, D-A-V-I, at BitcoinNotBombs.com. And coming up next month, I'm I'm starting out in Washington, D.C. I'm going to Bitcoin in the Beltway, uh, where I'll be speaking. And then immediately, like the day after that, I'll be going up to New Hampshire for the Porcupine Freedom Festival in New, in New Hampshire. And uh, I won't be speaking there that I know of, although I may I, – sometimes I get sort of roped into some sort of an event there. But I'm mainly going to, to, to vend. That's, that's pretty cool, man. Um, well, awesome. Uh, everybody go and buy Davi's book um, and support Davi. He's, a, he's an awesome dude. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so go uh, to all those websites we mentioned earlier. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> – yeah, BitcoinNotBombs.com is my Bitcoin-related stuff. Uh, ShinyBadges.com is my merchandise-related stuff. And then SurvivorMax.com is my zombie novel. Very cool. Very cool. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in.